on 89.9 The Light, you're in conversation with Clayton and joining us via the wonders of Zoom is Drew Gormley. He is, uh, well, a whole host of various things he's been involved in. We'll get him to share that in just a moment. But he's from Suicide Safer Communities, and we're going to be talking a bit around that tonight. That's going to be our focus with Drew. Drew, thanks so much for your time. I love being here, Clayton. Appreciate the opportunity. Drew, maybe uh, do give us a bit of your experience um, and we might lead to towards the idea of why do you care so much about, you know, being a part of Suicide Safer Communities, but a bit of your experience that's led to that. Uh, look, from my point of view, obviously, I'm, I, uh, am, uh, the sort of worldview I have is one where I want to help other people. I think that's a part of ex- my existence, being able to do that. Uh, there's a statement I love that says, evil prevails when good people do nothing. We had the opportunity to um, help in various ways and we had the means to be able to do that. So that's what we wanted to do. Um, and there doesn't seem to be anything out there that is consistently successful in altering the circumstances of either an individual or statistics across a broad range, geographic region or even a nation. So, um, yeah, it sort of we sort of fell into it in that we didn't even plan to get involved Someone from our organisation got some funding for some training. We went and did that, and then we found out what a huge issue it was, not only in Australia but around the world. Mm. And your personal, um, you know, experiences. You walk into this place is you've been a pastor for many years. You've been involved in a whole lot of various organisations as well. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. So we, uh, um, I, I came to faith in 70, 1979. Long story short, we end up getting involved in uh, establishing a church uh, where. People that don't normally uh, kind of go to church, connect with church, involved with church, where they were comfortable to come. So that was really gratifying for us. We did that. We uh, got involved in, uh, we have a social enterprise cafe and a creative space that we're running in Cranbourne for people that are either disconnected or isolated or struggling with, you know, psychological issues. That seems to be going pretty well. And then uh, obviously the prevention areas, apart from that, I'm uh, um, the husband of one wife, the father of five kids, and the grandfather of seven kids. So I have plenty of fun. <laughs> I'd, I'd reckon. Um, you, you used a couple of times as you described it there too. Um, we're doing this, we're doing that. Are you meaning your family? Is there a, a wider sort of group of Good. people that are doing things together? Yeah, look, uh, uh, when it got into prevent, so we've got great people around us all the time. One of the things that we always do first if, is if we feel like there's something that we want to do, get the right people on the bus. No point if you don't have the right people. Um, and uh, my the person who trained me in suicide prevention was based in uh, Western Australia and looked after the 750,000 square kilometres of the goldfields for the West Australian government in the area of prevention. Long story short, she ended up moving to Victoria. She's our prevention services director and principal developer of uh, our initiatives, which are gaining a lot of traction at the moment. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about suicide safer communities and we're going to dig yeah. into it a bit more in, in it. But, um, you know, you meet somebody for the first time, you've only got that, you know, 30 second elevator ride to tell them uh, what suicide safer communities is. What do you say? Well, what we got to do is we've got to realise that while people can find themselves at risk, you can never stop risk. I always say if you've got a pulse, you're going to have problems. That's the only requirement. Um, so what if we always try to protect people from risk, uh, mitigate risk, we're never going to, it's never going to end. So what we do is we want to create safety around people uh, because then they can manage the other side of it. That's what suicide uh, safer communities exists for. 
And that's our approach, very much prevention, not intervention or postvention, but we do do some of that as well. Yeah. Um, take us through, you know, some of, we understand that, and perhaps, I mean, to the credit of our society, we've started talking at least about suicide more of more recent years. Um, what are some of the statistics? What, what are some of the key areas that, you know, to help us identify uh, what is occurring at the moment? And then in you know, a few minutes time, we want to talk about uh, some of the ways that we are helping that prevention. Well, if you want to go global first, there's a suicide in the world every 40 seconds. Wow. There's, a, there's an attempt every two seconds globally. Um, uh, about uh, the economic loss to suicide globally is over a trillion dollars every year. Um, and, but for every $1 spent in effective prevention, we actually, from an economic point of view, are actually saving $2.50. Mm. So if we can get this right, it's not only, I mean, first of all, there's no, there's no you can't place a value on a human life. Uh, but, the, you know, just the very fundamental basic side of it, we've got that to understand. The other thing that uh, is really important, uh, or a couple of things that are really important in relation to statistics is they did a survey of 400 people that had um, engaged in um, serious self-harm to the point where their life would have ended if they didn't get help. They came to the emergency department and they simply asked them one question, did you want to die? And of the 400, 373 said no. So what we got to understand from that is people want to be helped. They just don't know how to be helped. Mm. The other things uh, that you probably want to be aware of, because a lot of people feel there's a lot of stigma around it in that, um, you know, what will, what will happen if I say something? What will happen if I tell a person? About one in 20 people in any given year will seriously think about it. So it's over a million people a year in, in, uh, in Australia. And about 80%, between 70 and 80% of people at some point during their life will consider it. So it's part of the human condition. And uh, what we got to do is remove the stigma so we can talk openly and honestly to provide support to people. Yeah. Um, that, that final stat is one that it leads me to ask a, a question and perhaps slightly insensitive. I'm not quite sure how to ask it correctly. That yeah. if you know 70 to 80% of us ask that um is there a wiring in us that that says there's something wrong going on um is this you know all of us i'm assuming would in our our, our, uh, our you know fair minds say no i want to keep living i want, I want to keep doing that so, so why why is 70 to 80 percent of us asking that question yeah sure first of all look uh, uh, well we're all kind of a bit broken inside uh, you know i say to people when they say to me oh, i have a particular diagnosed condition is the only difference between me and them is they, they haven't diagnosed me yet. They don't know what to call what I've got. So everybody has a problem. Uh, but uh, one of the things, primary reasons why I believe this is, is so common is it's the, um, the level of pain that we experience and our ability to cope. Now, if we're thrown into environments or situations where we don't have the capacity to cope, and that pain becomes, or pain or, you know, that capacity to deal with the situations, if that's not adequate, then while we don't want to die, we don't know how to keep living. And so for many people, they feel like it's their only option. Many people say, first of all, that, that, that their hopelessness gets to a level that um, they just, just feel like there's no way out. There's no one to talk to or no one understands. Now, 
if we can help people to change that perspective because there are people and there are ways and we want to try and um, kind of establish a better support framework in a whole range of communities in relation to that, it means that those people are going to be able to get through those tough times and just keep moving forward with what they're, who they're meant to be and what they're meant to be doing. Yeah. Um, look, as I've shared it, I believe, on this show uh, a number of times before, but um, as somebody who a number of years ago in the early 2000s, I, I went through a period of time where, just as you were describing, there was very clearly a three-week period where I went to bed every night and my prayer was, God, please take me in the morning. Uh, well, I don't. I do not want to wake up. And I meant that. That wasn't a. Yep. That, that's not just frivolous. Something you say now too. And and I think there was a difference for me as I've gone through that and and trying to understand now uh, how we get there. That, that's so very much not like me. I'm 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 somebody who's pretty up and about most of the time. But I realized this was very different in my life, and and I meant that too. Um, mm. is that something that? perhaps is being looked at enough. You know, we might talk about someone who uh, attempts suicide or someone who um, is thinking that's what it is. I wasn't about to do that to myself, but that was a, a deep burning desire that there's a depression that was clearly there. How does yep. those sorts of people sit in this community as we talk about um, safer, you know, suicide communities? Well, uh, one of the things that as, as a, from the point of view of response that has happened for many, many, many years is, and look, we, we understand there's limited resources, there's limited money and all that sort of stuff is, we only address something once it becomes a very serious problem in a person's life. And, you know, uh, for want of a better term, and I hope the description is not uh, uh, inappropriate, but we, as an organisation, we're preventative in nature. And what we do is we'd rather have a fence at the top of the cliff than an ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. What tends to happen too much in our society, the way it's been driven, um, the fact that we're becoming more um, virtual in even our relationships, it, is it means there's not that support and connection and things are left till right until it gets to the extremely serious stage. We recognise as an organisation, we've got to try and change that in our culture. We've got to try and change that in communities. We're currently working with a community in Victoria, country community where the suicide rate is many, many, many times the national average. And the first approach would be, let's deal with risk. We're suggesting you can't fix that. What we need to do is create opportunity for better relationships, safety for people to be vulnerable, create mechanisms whereby there are more, there is, is more of that fabric of relationship and community and support, which we tend to be losing in our more virtual culture, if you like. Yeah. My guest is uh, Drew Gormley. He is from Suicide Safer Communities. We're going to be back and we're going to talk about some of the very practical ways that uh, we can go about actually creating suicide safer communities. And we want to also uh, put you on the spot, Drew, uh, to share one of those stories. We understand that we're not going to use people's names. That's certainly not what we're going to do. But often it's great to hear a story of, of a life that has been impacted through the work you've done. So that's on the way next here on 89.9 Delight. In conversation with Clayton. 89.9 Delight, your in conversation with Clayton and Drew Gormley is my guest. He's from Suicide Safer Communities. And we've been talking about this topic. We understand it's a pretty heavy topic, but I think that's part of the point, isn't it? That uh, because of some of these heavy topics, we maybe veer away from talking about it, but we need to. Uh, that was part of what you said before, Drew, that we need to be okay to talk about this more. We need to be able to have these conversations and hopefully help people 
um, as they're going through what is obviously a difficult time in their life if this is where they're thinking. Um, Drew, um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about some of the um, you know, ways that you're actually helping be preventative. And, and I, for anyone who's listening at the moment, uh, what are some things that they can be doing in their local communities, uh, in their local families, in their, their own thinking and their conversations uh, to help and be on the alert? Mm. Um, perhaps if I can tell you a couple of quick stories first. Um, uh, and, and look, there are plenty of them. Uh, and it's probably not as hard as people think to help somebody. The first one was immediately after myself and my colleague was trained way back in the start of all of this in that a few days later, we were running a basketball club as well as a part of our community engagement. And One of the people in that uh, club, they were in a very dire situation emotionally, psychologically, and were in a uh, position where they were considering ending their life pretty well there and then. And the coach of our, our, our one of our teams was had them on the phone. They didn't know what to do, but my colleague, uh, the spouse of that individual uh, said, hand me the phone. Because she knew what to do within 10 minutes, that whole situation was resolved. Now, why it do, while it doesn't, always hand, uh, it doesn't always get managed that quickly, the fact that if we know what to do, simply, it's not difficult, simple process, we can actually help people. And we know that most of them, you know, 93% of people actually want help. Another one which was very gratifying is the, is the fact that uh, we, we realised that just training people is like trying to hold back the tide with a bucket. Uh, you've got to do more than that. So we created a complete suicide safer schools framework. So policies, procedures, pathway, training, referrals, uh, a whole uh, implementation framework that we would put in a school. And we started to implement this. We've implemented that uh, campuses uh, encompassing about three and a half thousand kids in Australia and a campus in Malaysia before we were even finished. Kids were helping other kids and resolving those situations. And honestly, in that particular instance, they didn't even need our help, mm. which was wonderful. And it's just about how we relate to each other. I mean, you would know that if you go, I'm pretty boring, I'm a bit older now. So we, my wife and I think going food shopping is a date. <laughs> and we go to the checkout and the first thing uh, the, the checkout person says is, hello, how are you? Now, while some of them want to know, most of them are just saying, hello, I noticed you're breathing and you're going to give me money. Yep. But we tend to want to stop right there and say, we, we've had a good day or had a busy day or whatever. How are you? And really just look at them, see them, let them talk to us. And now we go back to that shop, we get smiles before we get in the shop, we get people talking to us because we're actually building real relationships. We have those opportunities every day. And I think as we do that and we're prepared to ask real questions of people, even if they're somewhat difficult, we tend to find a great response. Um, people appreciate that and you can help people because of that process. Yeah. Uh, you talked about there, you know, there's a, a process that we can follow. Um, yeah. And I, I want to hear about how, how do people get involved in that and how do they find out more around that? Sure. But uh, I think part of it also tends to be that um, it is about a bit of that fear factor uh, yeah. of, I don't know what to do. So it's easier. It's probably better for me not to get involved because I might do something wrong or I might yeah. say the wrong thing. And oh boy, yes. I wouldn't want it on my head that somebody's I've said the wrong thing and then they've, they've gone and committed suicide. So yeah. uh, is that actually a real um, state that you understand people to, to be going through? Yeah. At times? Look, that's, that's almost entirely unfounded. That's like me 
uh, meeting you and, and we get to know each other and then you win, uh, I don't know if you play the lotto, but let's say someone gave you $100 million. And uh, then I came to your door, knocked on the door, Clayton, remember me, we had that great chat uh, on uh, In Conversation. I uh, heard you got some money and we had that good chat. You give me 80 million, please. Um, I can't plant that thought in your head so that you would suddenly, without you know your own will and choice, well, you might, oh, that would be great if you did, but highly unlikely that you would give me that money. The other thing that we've got to be very aware of is if you, if you saw somebody who'd collapsed on the side of the road that had a heart attack, if you did CPR, there's no way that you can legally be held liable for trying to help a person. In the same way, what we're really talking about is a psychological version of CPR. Yeah, right. So, rather, you know, as long as you don't do anything that's inappropriate and unsafe, trying to help is not something that you can create a worse environment. If a person's thinking about it, they're thinking about it. It's highly unlikely, unless something ridiculous happened, like a person encouraged somebody else, that that would plant a thought in their mind. So we've really got to try and rid ourselves of this. Um, it's really an imagined fear of our negative impact on a person. Yeah. All right. So here I am. I'm, I'm listening to you right now, Drew. I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. Uh, I want to be somebody who's better at um, you know, helping and creating suicide safer communities. I, I want to be better in my world and my life and, and in my family and my local community groups that I'm a part of. Um, what can I what can I now do to, to start going about being a part of uh, this help? Look, um, my, my colleague, Deborah Croft, who's been working in the area for 25 years, she actually trains the US military in a whole range of other services, both overseas and in Australia. She's... Um, um, the right person to answer these types of questions. But what we know is, is people perish because of lack of knowledge. They don't know what to do because of lack of knowledge, whether you're the person at risk or the person trying to help. So it's really about understanding. And you can uh, learn enough to help a person in need in about three hours. There are some simple basic steps. You can follow those steps each time. And by doing that, it's highly likely that you're going to be help, able to help a person and the goal with that type of thing is just to get them to longer-term help. So it, it really starts with uh, listening to the person. You listen to the person, you'll get various cues by what you see, what you hear, what you learn, what you sense about that individual. Uh, and then you'll know, you'll, if you know them reasonably well, you'll notice changes. Those things might lead you to ask a question. Now, a lot of people say, should I be blunt and direct if I'm concerned about a person? But I would prefer a person hate me because I ask them a question and they're offended with me and, and, and they hate me for 50, 60, 70 years than them to say, well, thanks for not asking me that question. I'll be your friend for the next three days and the end of life. Mm. So you have to get to a point where you ask them a simple, straight question. Hey, I care about you. I've heard these things. They lead me to believe that you might be thinking about ending your life. Is that something you're thinking about? I, I want to talk to you about that. I care about you. And we get to that stage, then they'll either say, "You're crazy," "I love you, but you're crazy," or "Look, I am," and then you can let them offload some of that burden. Over time, as you listen to people, you'll likely find that they've still got reasons for living because they're with you; they're there. So then you can start to, uh, you know, help them to see there's hope, there's a way forward. You walk with them, support them, help them with resources, guide them to the right people. 
And as you do that, it's highly likely that you're gonna be able to help them. So that's a process of understanding. It's gotta be a simple process, which it is. And by doing that two to three hours it's, uh, of, of, of training, it's that simple. So our, our program, our three hour program is called Help. It's you hear what's going on in a person's life. You inquire, are you considering any of your life? You listen to them and you work out a way that you agree with them so that they can protect themselves and get them to help, get them to longer term help. Yeah. Um, in terms of how you run those, are you on the lookout for community groups or churches to say, hey, look, I, I, can you guys come and run something here? Are you, do you run it all out of a central base and people can come and, and, and from there? How, how does it work? Well, so at this stage, we, we're basically um, we're getting lots and lots of inquiries to help. At the moment, it's a physical delivery of program. We're currently in the process of actually um, um, putting it all online, automating it all um, in relation to larger framework or our artificial intelligence software. That's something that we have to do in, in situ. So we have to go to people. But we're hoping over the next three to six months that all our programs from our one hour, our three hour, and even our six hour program, our, our program for school kids, they'll all be online, which will make it easily accessible for people to get the training they need. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, I, I'm especially fascinated by the fact that you've, uh, you're trying to cover each of the areas, even just in the, you know, the couple of moments you said there, you talked about schools. We know how, how vital they are in, in being able to train kids to have these conversations early and they've then got that yeah. for the rest of their life. We, we understand it in local community groups and, and also obviously in that online world and the, the mm. adaptive world of what online is. It, it's wonderful that they're the areas. What, is there, there new areas that you're wanting to keep exploring and, and looking into to say, look, these are, these are other parts that we want to, want to develop more? Well, uh, the, the area that I kind of touched on a minute ago, which is probably the most important, is the area of up-to-minute understanding about the gaps in a community or even in an organisation or an individual so that creates, we can create safety around them. Now, uh, the government's doing the very best job they can, but they're working with uh, ABS statistics that are three to four years old, which means that to then respond, it's retrospective or... Um, not quite what the situation is at, at a particular point in time. So if I can spend two minutes just telling you a quick story, my colleague, she was on a, she'd been training the US military, so on a plane on the way back, and the plane was nearly empty, but this older gentleman walked up and he started to put a suitcase in above her head because he was going to sit right next to her, and he actually dropped the suitcase on her. Um, he then got it in the thing and they sat down, and because of that, they started to have a conversation and and he runs a supercomputer, it'd been all over the world. And uh, based on a few things he said uh, to her, Deborah said, oh, look, could you use the supercomputer uh, super to actually identify real-time risk and the complex nature of real-time risk in a person, a group or a geographic region? And he said, you know, I've been all over the world and no one's ever asked me that question, but yes, you could. So over the last eight years, we've developed that piece of artificial intelligence software with a lot of support from the government. And uh, we are currently in the process of delivering that in a geographic region in the country. And that will not only give us each individual characteristic that is a risk characteristic in that community, but the complex nature of the way they contribute to an overall set of circumstances. But our role, our goal is, is to create safety not always try and put out fires. Our goal is to create that safety. And so this is probably, we believe, it's the first time it's actually been tried globally. Um, we're very confident. We've got really good people behind us. 
um, uh, the software uh, engineer that we're using uh, has a lot of experience on a national scale with these types of things. And uh, this kind of idea of artificial intelligence, how that might help us to get a current snapshot of any set situation is what we believe is going to help us to make informed decisions to help people. Yeah, just excellent. Suicidesafercommunities.org.au. Now that's the website if you want to head there and find out some more information. Suicide Safer. Sorry, yep, suicidesafercommunities.org.au. That's it, suicidesafercommunities.org.au. Um, Drew, just before we do go, we've talked a lot about um, that community idea and a community working together to pre prevent. And that's exactly, obviously, the, the whole point of what a Suicide Safer Communities is. Um, but maybe there's somebody listening who's thinking, I'm actually in that space now. This is some of the things I have been thinking about. I, I've been thinking about suicide in different ways or whatever it might be. Um, yeah. What should they be doing? right this moment? Look, I mean, if you're at immediate risk, there's two numbers that we recommend you ring. Uh, the one that we would recommend first is the suicide callback service. So they are people, if you call them, they will ring you back, but you'll always end up talking to the same person. It's not like you ring, you talk to a person, you ring the next time you talk to a different person. That number's 1300 659 467. Mm -hmm. And then obviously lifeline for immediate need is 131114. So those are the two immediate needs um, contacts that we would recommend that people use um, and, and start there. Don't be afraid to talk to the right people. There are those people that are around you that want to help. Don't be afraid of that. It, there's, there's no real stigma with it. I understand there's difficulty around it and whether we're successful or failures and all that stuff. But as we do that and reach out, as difficult as that might be, life can change. And I think that's really important, really yeah. important. So those numbers, again, the callback number 1300 659 467, 1300 659 467 and Lifeline 131114. Um, Drew, thank you again for your time uh, and especially thank you and your team for the work that you are doing with Suicide Safer Communities. We've really appreciated your time today. Uh, it's our, our pleasure and uh, thanks so much. Drew Gormley, my guest here on 89.9 The Light. That website again, suicidesafercommunities.org.au.